This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the uh, web at goodjudgepod.com. Howdy, folks. Once again, this is Wade Paget, And this is Tane Kell. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. Now, you know, Tane... Sometimes we talk about the things that are the most embarrassing things you can possibly do as a lawyer. One of those is reading yourself on a transcript, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's really, you don't make a sentence. It doesn't even make any English sense what you're saying. I thought I sounded a lot better than that. Yeah. Well, try listening to yourself on a podcast. Yeah. My, my voice is more nasally than I thought it was. Well, it just, you know, it's one of those things that you're always hypercritical of. So, as we go through, we're going to try to be a little more conversational in our tone, so bear with us as we sort of work our way through some of these some of these other issues. Now, you want to tell people what we're going to talk about today? Sure. Uh, today, we're going to retread a topic that we went over once before. Now, you haven't heard this podcast because, well, it never made it to air because, in their great wisdom, the General Assembly changed the law right after we recorded our first podcast on third-party custody. That's right. As our wizard, Stephen Turner, was editing our recordings, Governor Kemp signed a law literally the day, either before or after we recorded, and it changed some of the law and some of the comments that we had made we were worried still didn't fit, so we had to trash two episodes of the podcast. So we're going to give this a second try. Remember, we post written outlines of our podcast on goodjudgepod.com. So if you need to see any of the citations we talk about today, please feel free to go over there. Now, Tane, recently you handed me a article from the Fulton County Daily Reporter where a uh, a lawyer uh, wrote an article and said, and, and was sort of helpful in our, in our process. And she was talking about the fact that there are three statutes, used to be two, but now there are three statutes that, that's, that deal with third parties seeking custodial rights to children in superior court. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, Wade. Um, OCGA section 19-7-1 relates basically to grandparents and others who can seek custody. Uh, 19-7-3 talks about grandparent visitation. And then 19-7-3.1, which is the new statute, um, talks about what they call equitable caregiver custody. So before we list, we go through the statutes, we're going to talk a little bit about the reasons why these rules exist and why they there's a higher standard for a third party to seek custody of a child than it would be simply between two parents. The There's a legal conflict in between a couple of fundamental rights. One, the fundamental right to be a parent as opposed to the legitimate state interest in seeking the best interest of children. Right. And, and you know, that's based on a lot of cases law out there that says that, you know, you essentially have a constitutional right to be a parent um, once you give birth to a child. And, um, but the state also has a, a right and an obligation uh, to take care of the children that are within its borders. 
You know, they talk about the right to be a parent to being a fundamental right that is protected by the uh, the 14th Amendment and the most one of the strongest rights we have, maybe even stronger than the right to remain free from incarceration, is the right to be a parent, even a bad parent. Because we don't ever judge these things by financial resources or whatever, because you would just, Daddy Warbucks would have all the children. Right. And, and, you know, the United States Supreme Court has recognized that parents have a fundamental liberty interest in the care and custody and management of their children. So that comes right down from the U.S. Supreme Court. One of the cases that is sort of seminal in this in this area, at least in Georgia, is a case called Clark v. Wade. And Justice Hunstein wrote a pretty significant dissent and dissenting opinion in which she talked about the fact that the days of Leave it to Beaver or even the Huxtables are, are in the past, and a lot of kids no longer live with their parents. Their primary caregiver is an aunt, a grandparent, or similar. You well, remember that? Yeah, absolutely. And and you and I see that every day, and I'm sur- sure all of our colleagues do as well. I mean, uh, the people who are uh, living in two parent mother father households are are somewhat the minority these days in the cases certainly in the cases that we see both criminal cases um, and domestic cases and so we have to deal with that and we have to figure out uh, what's going to be in those children's best interest um, but again balance that with the rights that parents uh, still have and remember that you, as you go through this, we're balancing constantly balancing this this fundamental right to be a parent versus the best interest of the child, and how we get there sometimes causes these statutes to be written in the way that they are. So let's took let's take now a, a look at 1971 and 1973. In 1971, it's really subsection B.1 is the section that deals with third party custody, and then 197. 3.1 is that new statute that we talk about being the equitable caregiver statute, and none of us have really had any experience with that yet, so that's sort of a to-be-seen thing. Yeah, so heads up, folks, you're going to be making case law every time you decide one of those cases. Yeah, just exactly what you wanted to hear, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> well, the great thing is you can never be wrong, but you also probably can never be right when you make a decision on a new, <laughs> on a completely new law. Hey, Wade, just as an aside... How is it that we number statutes in Georgia? Because I don't understand when they have 19-7-1B.1 and 3.1B and uh, all of that. Can you explain that to our folks? You know, honestly, no. But honestly, the truth is I think that there are a lot of statutes that if they change, they'd have to renumber the whole system to add a new subsection. So rather than do that, that's when we get into the B.1s and the 3.1s. And they want it to be next to this one, but they don't want to change the next 53 by one number. So they just do the .1s and whatever. But, you know, 1971B.1, 1973, and 1973.1, which I guarantee you we will misstate that at some point today, that they are not exactly the same. They track... There are some similar concepts in each, but they, they're not exact. So let's start with 1971B.1. Sure. And tell everybody that 1971B.1 is based upon what sort of relationship between the child and the party seeking custody? Well, it really starts at, at the most basic level of the biological relationship between biological parents and the child. Now, some people think that this is, I guess, limited or they confuse it with the grandparent visitation statute. It's not the same thing. The third parties in 1971B.1 that can seek custody of a child is limited to the following list. And again, this is in the statute. You can look it up if you don't remember. But it's grandparent, great-grandparent, 
aunt, uncle, great aunt, great uncle, sibling, or adoptive parent. So it's basically the people you should expect to get a birthday card from. That's a that's a good way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and when you were younger, they might have had money in them. Well, they should have. I don't know if they did, but so, I had that aunt who never. I had an aunt one time that gave me socks. Oh, man. she always gave me socks. And from there on, she was always the sock aunt, wasn't she? Yeah, but she never. I don't think would have sought custody of me. No, nah, you don't want to be the sock aunt either. All right, so parental power, the 1971B.1, to pull us back to the, the task at hand, it says that one of these people in the list can hear, can, can get custody of the child if, in the exercise of the court's discretion and taking into consideration all of the circumstances of the case, if that court determines that the award of custody to the third party is for the best interest of the child or children and will best promote their welfare and happiness. Now, Tane, tell them how they get around this fundamental right to parent versus best interest of the child state interest what's that tell them about that presumption yeah uh, essentially the the statute creates this rebuttable presumption that it is in the best interest of the child for the custody to be awarded to their biological parent or parents um but that presumption can be overcome and and there are certain circumstances in which it can be overcome the the basic showing needs to be that an award of custody to the third party is in the best interest of the child or of the children. Um, in that case, the sole issue that's going to be determined is what the best interest of the child or the children would be. Now, if you ever get confused about the difference between 1971B.1, 1973, or 1973.1, remember this, 1971B.1 indicates that there are only three groups capable of exercising parental control. The parents, a parent, or the third parties limited to what is on that list. So just be aware that this is the biology relationship. Right. So compare that to 1973.1, which is not based upon biology, but of actual interaction relationship. So the way you can remember that is B.1 is the biology statute. Is that what you're saying, Wade? Wow, Tane, did you just come up with that by yourself? I did. That was awesome. Thanks. All right, so 1973.1 is brand new, and we're going to have to learn it all together. We're going to call it the equitable caregiver statute. This is basically expands the list of people that can seek custody of a child to people beyond a biological relationship. Kind of like Justice Hunstein's um, dissent in Clark v. Wade, she was saying the modern family is not really necessarily biology at all. Well, and, and this actually goes to fix a problem that you and I have seen before, which is, you know, a, a scenario that comes up frequently is one or both parents are uh, – addicted to drugs maybe the reason they got together in the first place was because of their common interest in uh in in illegal substances and they have a child or they have children and there is somebody who steps up um and, and it may be someone who is not a not even a member of the immediate family but we see them as judges and they are the ones who have literally been the parents to these children since they were born and previously we didn't really have a right to intervene as between the biological parents and and those folks who had been the de facto parents for those kids for all that time and so this is really meant i think to address that situation that we had seen come up from time to time you know it's probably like people like neighbors and and people who really are non-traditional don't that you might not get a birthday card from it 
with any money in it, correct? Exactly. And and the truth is, a lot of times, they're just really good people who've come in in a crisis and intervened and done something really above and beyond the call, and then we didn't have the right to give them any kind of legal rights with respect to those children. So if you get to a 1973.1 case, again, equitable caregivers case, the standard is clearing convincing evidence. And we're not going to belabor that point. We feel like the people who listen to this understand there's a difference between preponderance and clearing convincing and beyond a reasonable doubt. But there is a point that this is a higher standard. Well, this isn't the same standard that you use in most other civil cases. And the really important point for our, our judges out there who are listening to this podcast, and we really do hope there are some listening, um, is that uh, you need to make these findings a fact. And, and, and I'm sorry, you need to state clearly that you found by clear and convincing evidence that this was the person who needed to have uh, custody of the child because it was in their best interest. Now, this equitable caregiver statute is going to be really hard to meet the procedural requirements, frankly. In the, in the statute, it essentially gives you a, an ABC123 way to get into a case that is already existing. It literally has the, the, the complaint and the affidavit that has to be filed. It's in the statute. But then this is the, the definition of an equitable caregiver. It's, it, it's an A through E, so there's five of them, but there's an AND. So in other words, it has to be all five, not one of five factors. And for example, it has to be a person who has fully and completely undertaken a permanent, unequivocal, committed, and responsible parental role in the child's life. B, that person must be engaged in consistent caretaking of the child. C, that person must have established a bonded and dependent relationship with the child. D, the person has accepted full and permanent responsibilities as a parent of the child without expectation of financial compensation. And E, it has been demonstrated that the child will suffer physical harm and long-term emotional harm and that continuing relationship between the third party and the child will be in the best interest of the child. So, Tane, I mean, that's a difficult hurdle. There's a lot of hurdles within the hurdle, so to speak. And so it's going to be difficult for somebody to clearly meet that definition of equitable caregiver according to the statutory definition. Yeah, but that makes sense, Wade, because what we're doing here is making a, a determination that living biological parents don't have a right to parent their own children, that there is nobody in the immediate family who is going to be either willing or able to take responsibility for those children. And we're going to remove them from those people and, and essentially give all the rights to parent that child to a third party who's not related necessarily to the child, or at least is outside of their immediate circle of family. And, you know, we talked about earlier that, it, and we've, we, well, I guess it was a podcast that we had to trash, talked about harm that it can't be just financial. It has to be more than the, the other people can provide a better financial situation for the child. And I don't want to confuse things, but this is similar to the standard that applied previously to um, giving uh, custody over to a grandparent uh, in, exactly. in, in, as opposed to a parent. And so what we're, what we're going to show is if you, if you prove that harm, that last element that is required under 3.1 to meet the definition of equitable caregiver, you're going to have to show, among other things, the following. Who are the present and past caretakers of the child? With whom has the child formed psychological bonds and the strength of those bonds? 
whether a competing party has evidenced an interest in and contact, and contact with the child over time, and whether the child has any unique medical or psychological needs that one party is better able to meet. Now, that's a statute or, I guess, case law definition. But the point is, by clear and convincing evidence, you have to prove harm. These are the kind of harms we're talking about, not that the child will physically suffer at the hands of the parent. I mean, it is broader than that. But it, it can be emotional or long-term emotional harm. And, and those are the kind of things that you're supposed to look at. And this is the definition in both 1971 and 1973.1, as you were saying, that it must be clear and convincing evidence that that harm exists and it has to be more than just physical harm. And let me say one thing about that, too. Some of these cases that we see are cases in which, for example, the biological parents acknowledge that there is a person who they are satisfied is capable of better caring for the children than they are. Everybody who comes into court essentially agrees to that, and they want the custody to go to those third parties. I mean, that's, at least in my experience, almost as frequent as the circumstance where everybody's fighting over the custody of the child as between parents and a third party. But, but just understand, in that kind of circumstance, you as the judge still need to hear the evidence because you are still required to make these clear and convincing evidentiary findings um, finding all of those factors to be present in the case. So don't make that mistake um, as a judge or as a lawyer by saying, well, all the parties agree, and then not making those essential findings of fact. Because as, as Wade was saying a minute ago, all five of those elements have to be present, and you have to find that they've been proven by clear and convincing evidence. So let's talk about this. Let's take a timeout, and let's talk about a practice point for judges. You and I have had this conversation before, particularly as related to attorney's fees awards, how attorneys just will not give you the right findings of fact in, a, in an order, a written order that you tell them to prepare. They never seem to meet the standard. Right. Do you, how closely do you read these orders? Let's say you had one of these third-party custody cases that was actually contested, which I understand is not every day, but there are some. And he comes in with, I find it's in the best interest of the child to live with X, therefore. Right. Would you edit that? Would you send it back? What's your, how do you handle that? I, I do. I, I um, you Wait, have to, which? I, I do go back and edit those and add in the require, the requisite findings. But you got to remember, Wade, you're talking to the guy who also on an uncontested divorce that has children involved still make one of the parties show up and give me some evidence so that I can make the required finding that it's in the best interest of the child for these people to have the visitation and, and custody that they've worked out in their settlement. So I, I'm a little bit of a stickler for that. But yeah, I think it's important in those cases for you to do what the law says, which is make the specific findings that the statute requires. And so if the lawyers did it wrong, I think it's our job to fix that. And, you know, we can spend as much time as we want on the record saying all the right words. Right. But if the written order doesn't reflect the right words, it's going to get reversed or at least remanded. And let's think about it. This would be the circumstance that we would be as bad as, say, an adoption getting reversed. It's one of those things that you should just never make a mistake on because five years down the line or 10 years down the line, you don't want someone to be, be able to come back and challenge permanent parental custody that you've given to a of a child um, and have that be disrupted. Yeah, that would be bad. All right, all right, back to these presumptions. 
Tane, tell the folks about the rebuttable presumptions that exist under 19.7.3.1. Yeah, sure. Uh, the first presumption is that the parent is a fit person who's entitled to custody. Uh, the second is that a fit parent acts in the best interest of his or her child. And the third presumption is that the child's best interest is to be in the custody of a parent. Now, these presumptions are not specifically listed in the statute under 3.1, but, you know, all the cases that we've reviewed, it seems like to us, and, and uh, Tane and I have, have agreed on this, it seems that these are the presumptions you need to start with and you need to acknowledge, even if they're not in the statute, because if you don't, we think that you may run afoul of this whole pile of cases of constitutional law that says that you must start with those presumptions. Yeah, and again, not to not to you know beat a dead horse on this, but um, you may have a case where you come in and essentially everyone agrees that these are not presumptions that are present in the case, or it may be incredibly apparent uh, that those presumptions have uh, been overcome. But you have to start your analysis at square one. But they are rebuttable presumptions. Absolutely, don't, I mean it, it's it. They, it's a presumption that you acknowledge, and then you acknowledge it's been rebutted, and then you must make those findings by clear and convincing evidence. Now, exactly. this is a bright line rule that we get wrong a lot. Dun, 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 dun. Bright line rule. Is that our own sound effect? Yeah, man. Very nice. All right. You cannot, as a judge, award joint legal custody between two people who are not parents. Wait, say that again? You cannot award custody, joint legal custody, to to two people who are not parents. That really does sound like a hard and fast rule. It is a very hard and fast rule. And it came out of a case called Stone versus Stone. And it went through a long analysis. And, and it's really fascinating if you're into all of this stuff. But it's probably not worth our time here to go back through why. We just need to leave this podcast knowing the only people that can have joint legal custody are parents. Now, I will tell you, I have done it before, before I became aware of Stone, because it made sense to me. My ultimate goal, hopefully, if the child, if the parents got their mind right and started living the right life, you would want them to still be engaged in the child's life. But the law is real clear, and, and the legislature has not changed it. So there's a presumption that they knew what they were doing, and after the decisions, they haven't changed it, so they, they, they agree with the rule. But basically, the definition of joint legal custody is that it's between parents. Right. And so in a, if, you give party, if you give custody to a third party, they have to have legal custody. Now, if you want to call it sole, whatever you want to call it, you can't call it joint. Right. And that, and that comes from uh, OCGA section 19-9-6. Now, this case of Stone versus Stone has been echoed and, and, and approved in subsequent cases, cases called Sheffield versus Sheffield and Stone versus Webb and, and Holdaway versus Holdaway. And wait, Wade, where can they find this, the uh, citations to those cases? Goodjudgepod.com. That's a great website. It is a great website. Um, so as we go through to miscellaneous issues relating to third-party custody, these, are, these statutes are in derogation of common law, so they always have to be construed strictly. And, for example, under 1971B.1, a former legal father, i.e. somebody whose rights were terminated, is not one of the people that can get custody of a child, even if they live with that child for a very long time. 
But that is maybe some of the source. Some of these cases we're about to tell you about may have been the source of 3.1. But a former legal father doesn't is not in that list of 1971B.1. Well, because that would be, and that would make sense. I mean, that's a person whose legal rights have at some point in time previously been terminated or uh, the child's rights, uh, the child's custody has been given over to someone else. And so they don't still occupy that same position that they occupied uh, at the outset when the child was born. And then the same is true with like a former spouse. That person's not not on that list under 1971B.1. A sister of someone who is alleged to be the putative father is not an aunt as defined by that statute. And there right. are cases, we, we've got them in the, in the outline, there are cases that say that, that that list is is pretty exclusive. And because you have to strictly construe those statutes, they have to be construed exactly like they were like they say, not what you think somebody meant to say. And that may seem weird, but if you think about it, the law is only dealing with legal custody. And so just because biology makes you an aunt doesn't mean that there is then established a legal relationship that also makes you an aunt. Correct. So you know, sometime other courts, and we're going to be talking to some of our friends from probate court and, and other courts during during the coming days. But, you know, like, we're, for example, juvenile court has authority to grant certain rights as it relates to children. So in well, those cases where they do, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, what does that do to our right as superior court judges to grant custody? Well, it depends. If it's a guardianship, mm-hmm. that act does not deprive us, deprive us of the right to 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 review and order and award custody. If, on the other hand, they have found the child to be a deprived child and they've actually assumed custody of the case, Mm -hmm. that's one of those things we need to defer to them because we have both courts have custody, but whoever exercises it first ends up with the exclusive right to decide custody until they give it up. And so if they have decided the child is neglected or abandoned or deprived is the, the, the language of the statute. They, they can keep that case. But if it's just a guardianship, they don't. But now tell them about probate court. Well, we're going to do an entire pro- podcast on probate court. So I wanted to also uh, let you know that. So be looking for that as well. But um, where you know where the principles are basically the same in probate court as they are in juvenile court, where guardianships have been granted through probate court, um, that doesn't create the same relationship vis-a-vis the child as is created when you're deciding matters of custody. And, and think about it this way. It makes sense. Guardianships are basically a protective role. They're not, they're not really a custodial role. It's, a, it's someone who comes in to intervene on behalf of the child to try to look out for their best interests. That's right. So let's wrap this up. Um, our time is running short, so let's go through 1971B.1. Tain, the presumptions exist under that statute, and what are they one more time? Number one, the parent is a fit person entitled to custody. Number two, a fit person acts in the best interests of his or her child. Number three, that the child's best interest is to be in the custody of a parent. And all those, although the presumptions are not specifically included within the statutory language of 1973.1, the new equitable caregiver statute, both of us believe that they remain applicable even though they're not written into the statute. You right. agree? Right. And I think they assume the level of a, of a constitutional requirement. Now, to overcome these presumptions, the third-party relative, as defined by the statute, 
must show two things by clear and convincing evidence. Again, we're on 1971B.1. What are those things, Tane? Number one, that parental custody would harm the child. And number two, that an award of custody to the third-party relative will best promote the child's health, welfare, and happiness. And remember, those are both and statements, so uh, you have to show all of those elements. And then harm, as we talk about in these statutes to the child, must be more than a showing that the child might have had a better financial, educational, or moral advantages with that third party relative to the parent. And it must be more than mere discomfort of the child from switching from one school to another, one home from another. There's an acknowledgement in these cases that that's going to happen and it is going to be hard, but that doesn't control the constitutional right to be a parent. That's right. So when assessing harm, you got to consider four. I don't know how we ended up with you having to read all the factors, but when assessing harm. I'm happy to help, Wade. Thanks. When assessing harm, the court's got to consider these four factors. Tell the, tell the people one more time what those are. Sure. First, who are the past and present caregivers of the child? Second, with whom has the child formed psychological bonds? Third, have the competing parties evidenced interest in and contact with the child over time? And four, finally, does the child have unique medical or psychological needs that one party is better able to meet? The interesting thing about that last one is, that sometimes does have to do with finances more than other things. And so it's not that finances can't be a factor at all. It's just that can't be the reason that you make the determination. That's right. So we're going to we're going to come back in a little while and, and, and cover grandparent visitation as a separate separate episode. We just wanted to make sure that everybody was aware that the law had changed, which it does without warning. I think we talked about early in the, our podcast series that sometimes we record podcasts on the day that governor signs bills. And we should probably keep up with that a little well, better. I just wish he'd call more. <laughs> no, seriously. Does he ever return your calls? Okay. No. Okay, exactly. And so we are going to cover grandparent visitation in a separate episode. We want to thank you for listening to us, and uh, we are hoping that, that we'll always be a little bit better this time, or excuse me, next time than we were this time. So with that, remember to go check us out at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. If you have an email or a comment, go out and check out the outlines, etc. at goodjudgepod.com. And I'm Wade Padgett. I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. (laughs) But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And thanks for listening. 
Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience, and the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.